stay bout it, I'm not pouting Break through walls and climb it mountains If you want it, scream it loud and show this world what they've been G'day listeners, welcome to the Braintainment Podcast. This show is an interesting mix between pop culture and personal development with a very wide range of guests that come on the show for a chat from the sports space, philosophy, health and fitness, entertainment and everything in between. The idea is to entertain or to educate you guys and hopefully sometimes both, either through just myself or with the guests that come on the show as we explore different ideas and concepts and have some really interesting conversations. The mission with the Brain Tamen podcast is to raise a million dollars, and that all starts with uh, building an audience and a platform. So thank you for tuning in. Our goal is to raise a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and family, and be sure to subscribe. With that said, strap in and enjoy this episode. Okay, welcome back to the Braintainment channel. This show, of course, is designed primarily to add value in some way and to help optimize for what I'll shorthand to be a fulfilling life. And today's conversation is going to help us move in that direction. We're going to dive into the conversation around sleep, arguably one of the most important pillars for a fulfilling life, um, massive impact on mental health, performance, of course, and just general well-being. And so today I'm really fortunate to be joined by Dr. Shane Criado, a board certified psychiatrist and sleep medicine physician. He is also a sports psychiatrist and is on the board of directors of the International Society for Sports Psychiatry, as well as the Registry of Sports Psychiatrists for the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Dr. Criado has clinical experience with the veterans population, college mental health, exercise prescription and mental health, comorbid psychiatric and sleep problems, CBT insomnia, alcohol recovery groups, regressive hypnosis, and much more. So a whole host of uh, parts that we could dive into in this conversation, but we'll cover as much as we can in the short period that we have. He does, of course, use these skills he has acquired in these disciplines to holistically apply evidence-based medicine in the service of his patients. He's the host of the Overcoming Insomnia course, which teaches the best evidence-based strategies to improve sleep. He's the author of Peak Sleep Performance, the cutting edge sleep science that will guarantee a competitive advantage, which debuted at number one new release on Amazon in sports medicine in March 2020. And so we get to pick his brain today and there is lots to cover off. So with that all said, welcome Dr. Criado. Thank you so much, Liam, for having me. Happy to be here and please call me Shane. Shane, fantastic. Well, I'm a pretty casual sort of guy. I like to cover really important conversations on this show, but um, That'll work very well. So Shane, to kick things off, let's just set the scene, I suppose. We're going to be talking a lot about sleep, your field of expertise, of course, but why is sleep so important and what impact does our sleep quality have on our life? Well, when we realize that sleeping is something we have to do, we can go without water for a few days, without food for several days or even weeks. If you go without sleep for weeks, you die. So sleep is essential for life, Liam. And all the data has indicated that the way we were supposed to do it, sleep when the sun goes down, wake up when the sun comes up at sunrise, all those things really help synchronize our entire body, everything from our reproductive system to inflammation, to our hormones, to our gut. So there's a lot we can get into, but sleep is a pillar of performance, brain health, and overall health. And when we look at the most common causes of death in the developed world, even the US, Australia, we find things like car accidents, heart disease, strokes, dementia, different sorts of cancers, right? The top five causes of death in our countries, all of them have direct links to sleep loss. Wow. So imagine the impact, right? If, if all of these diseases have such a huge burden on our lives, on our societies, not just the cost running into hundreds of billions and even trillions of dollars worldwide. If we can modify our sleep, which is modifiable, that's the cool thing about it. If we can change our sleep and optimize it, not just, oh, this is normal, so I feel decent, but really use it as a tool 
of peak performance in our daily lives, in our relationships, in our work, in our athletic performance. Mm. It's going to set us up for success. That's going to be our foundation stone. Yeah, I find that, um, well, I imagine people listening or watching will relate already, knowing the difference between a good night's sleep and a bad night's sleep and the impact that has the following day. And, you know, it's interesting, some of the stuff you alluded to there and the signs coming out about the long-term effects and all these ailments and illnesses that arise from consistently poor sleep. So um, I just want to get into the science of it a little bit because I like to geek out a little bit. I mean, the name of this program is Braintainment. Um, so can we talk a little bit about what's actually going on when we do get um, quality sleep and what's going on when we don't get sufficient sleep in our brain, our nervous system? Um, I guess some of the nitty gritty stuff of why we feel kind of sluggish when we don't. Absolutely. So I think about sleep the way that we need to think about, needs to think about our food. It's about the quality of, of sleep. It's about the quantity of sleep and the timing. And what you do during your waking hours, Liam, is as important as what you do while you're asleep. So even different timings of exercise, different meal timings can sabotage our rhythms. Every single cell in our body has its own clock, has its own circadian rhythm, even our skin cells. So if you're out of whack with your natural rhythms, it sets everything up else, uh, everything else for failure. So we know that when you wake up super early in the morning, your cortisol levels or stress hormone levels are increasing while your melatonin levels come down to get you alert and awake. We know that your testosterone levels are then secreted in high amounts early in the morning. And that's associated with your energy levels, your desire to do stuff, your motivation, your drive. And then as you go throughout the day, you're building up a sleep need because hopefully you're not napping all over the place. And as you build up that sleep need, your cortisol levels are gradually coming down. And then your melatonin levels rise in the evening. And at the point of maximum melatonin secretion, your body is expected to now be sleep deprived enough since you were awake all day to synchronize beautifully and sleep. And in your early sleep, beginning of the night, you're going to have a lot of growth hormone secretion. So a lot of kids who don't get enough sleep in this day and age because they're on their phones all the time, their growth can actually be stunted. Not only that, there's different cycles to sleep. Right? There's deep sleep, there's dream sleep. The deep sleep is really important for getting blood flow to the brain. The brain is slowed down and there's a system, a drainage system that flushes out toxins. Studies published this year show that those toxins include beta amyloid plaques, which are actually deposited in Alzheimer's patients' brains. So it helps flush out those toxins and prevents or it prevents the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Dream sleep is extremely important for memory consolidation. Now, we've known for a few years, Liam, that sleep is super important after you've studied something to retain that information. We know that, right? It's universal knowledge. But recent studies also show that you need sleep before you actually study as well, like a dry sponge ready to soak up that information. And we also know what happens when you don't get enough sleep in terms of memory and performance. Mm. GPAs, grade point averages crash. K kids are twice as likely to drop class, drop out of school. Your athletic performance will suffer, but also the parts of your brain that retain memories actually drop in functioning by 40%. So that's the difference between getting an A or flunking out. Wow. So those are really, really big numbers. So that's some of the stuff that goes on in the brain at a very, very basic, simplistic level when it comes to sleep. And that understanding of the rhythms, the nature of sleep and the needs, what drives your sleep, help us understand why people recommend what they do when it comes to optimizing your sleep synchronizing your rhythms the importance of routine mm. yeah you mentioned that um the kids for example playing on their phone their phones and that extends pretty universally to adulthood as well all of us have been guilty at one point or another so it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about happens quite 
naturally, at least it should anyway. And so I guess the, the logical conclusion then, um, and of course there's a lot of variables would be, well then if we're not sleeping well, then we're, we're probably do it must be our lifestyle or the decisions we're making or the vices we have that get in the way that are essentially disrupting that. Is that kind of a, a fair assessment? And, and if, if so, what are some of the culprits that, that you see from a societal point of view that get in the way of um, allowing, I don't know if that's the right word or not, allowing for a better night's sleep? You hit the nail on the head. You're absolutely right there, Liam. And our rhythms are supposed to be, it's really interesting if you look at the data. When the light comes, when the sun comes up, it actually light suppresses, brings down our melatonin levels. So even if you've had a late night, you're waking up groggy, go in the bright sunlight, it actually triggers your brain to shut down its melatonin. So you'll be more alert. And then as we go through the day, you might have a dip in performance around the afternoon time, typically with a high carb or high sugar meal, it's going to happen. But also that's another window of opportunity. So historically, anthropologists have determined that human beings would sleep in little chunks two or three times in a 24-hour period. Leonardo da Vinci apparently would get 20-minute naps um, every two hours. Cristiano Ronaldo, the soccer player, he naps 90 minutes at a time, five minutes in a 24-hour period. Um, similarly, astronauts in the International Space Station are taught to do that too. It's called the Uberman sleep cycle. Um, I don't recommend that for people who have normal lives, but, <laughs> <laughs> but napping is okay if you know how to strategically nap at a fixed time in the afternoon for maybe 25 minutes or 90 minutes, depending on your sleep needs. So what happens there is we wake up, go through the day, our sleep need builds up. And then as the sun goes down, it's almost sunset over here. There's a lot of orange and red light. Incidentally, orange and red light do not adversely affect the melatonin. Your melatonin levels can rise normally despite orange and red light. So you think about cavemen, right? They'd start the fires when the sun went down. It wouldn't affect their ability to sleep. Mm. And they'd have the fire outside of the cave, then they'd go back to the cave to sleep. You didn't see any fancy flat screen TVs in the caves, right? You didn't see bright lights. People weren't playing on their Xboxes or swiping on Tinder on their phones in caves. No. So caves are completely bland, not stimulating, and safe spaces. And that's exactly what the bedroom should be. It's not an extension of our living room. I recommend certain, pa certain patients fly me out to their fancy cribs to check out their rooms and figure out what they're doing wrong. And some of my elite athletes spend millions of dollars pimping out their homes, flat screen TVs, banks of them in their rooms. They're actually spending money to sabotage <laughs> their performance that made them so successful. It's crazy. So, you know, they don't like what I have to tell them. Because even the standby light on the TV, even light coming in through the cracks in, in, the, in the window under the door can be stimulating for you. And so mm. it's all about understanding that if sleep is your anchor, you need to treat it as your mini vacation. That's what I tell all of my patients. Okay, you're working from home now, you have busy lives, your family, your kids, your spouse. It's annoying, I know, but sometimes. But I say now is your mini vacation. One hour before your bedtime, it starts. And it's about letting go, mm. not trying too hard. And giving your brain a chance to use it as an anchor point. I think that's why I like connecting with people like yourself, Shane, and having these sort of conversations because it makes, it gives it um, important ideas. It becomes really tangible. So for example, the, the conversation around getting morning light in the morning uh, or light first thing in the morning. Um, that's been around for a while. I remember hearing that as a child and just not really paying too much attention to it. When we understand that that's actually suppressing melatonin, I think you were saying there, right? Then yes. it, it, it makes it more digestible, at least for me anyway, I'm a pretty logical thinker. Um, it goes from a less ethereal sort of concept to, oh, wow, this is actually having a biological, physiological effect. Um, and it makes sense. And then if I get out in the morning, early in the morning, get exposure to sunlight, 
these physiological effects are taking place. That's that's why I actually start to feel better. It's not just a you know an old wives' tale, so to speak. It's, <laughs> there's like, there's something going on. I think that's really really exciting. Um, before we sort of dive down the rabbit hole too much, I'd love to know how you ended up in this space, Shane. I know for myself, you know, I love the conversation around sleep primarily derived from my own sleep issues. Like I, I've never been a great <laughs> sleeper personally, and that's a, I won't digress too much in my own story, but. Um, you know, fortunately I've been, you know, I've gone down the rabbit hole and I've learned and, and it's, it's improved significantly and I've become passionate about it, but it was as a result of the pain of sleeping so poorly. So I, I don't know if that's the same case for yourself or people that you were close to that you saw struggling. How did you end up, you know, having this conversation with me? Yeah, it's crazy how life works, right, Liam? Uh, I started off with actually studying physical therapy because my maternal grandfather had a stroke when I was a teenager. I saw that's a really cool field. And I felt limited in my work in physical therapy, which is an amazing field, but I couldn't, I wasn't allowed to prescribe medicines. A lot of my patients were profoundly depressed and I felt I needed to do more. So I went to medical school and became a psychiatrist. Then I really started getting interested in sports psychiatry, got in contact with some really phenomenal mentors. And I realized that that was where I wanted to devote my attention, not just, yeah, of course, treating mental health issues, which is such a serious mm. issue in today's day and age, especially in the age of COVID. But I didn't want to just make them zombies or just throw a bunch of meds at them. I wanted to optimize their lives. I wanted to, to have it flip around so that they remain in control of their destiny, not be victims coming to me for meds every month. So that's what I decided to do, focus on sports, psychiatry, and optimizing brain health, because it's not just about meds, and we could always talk about brain health too. So much to talk about, Liam. There but is. then I realized in, in, my, in my work with elite athletes, whether it's the NBA Players Association or the PGA or whatever organization I worked for, there were even the Australian Football League, there's no consistent sleep guidelines laid out. And athletes focus on their physical conditioning, their mental conditioning, their nutrition, but they only address sleep when there was a problem or when they had to travel and they had miserable jet lag. And then they were just handed out Ambien. I was like, oh no, this is terrible because sleep is a key pillar. You know, it's like saying, okay, athlete, go out on the field, play a game. And then if you don't do so well, if you're terrible at it, if you break a bone, then maybe you need some rehab exercise. No, it's about getting to peak performance before problems arise. And so there was no consistent guideline around sleep. I did another specialization after psychiatry and sleep medicine. So I'm a bit of a masochist there, studied for many, many years. But I then realized that there was a huge overlap between sleep and psychiatric issues. And we can combine those skills to help people out, improve the quality of their lives and also optimize the performance in every domain. So then you, you touched on the mental health challenges there. Let's talk about that a little bit because it is very rife over the last few years. And, and obviously, you know, the microscope's really zoomed in on it now with um, the COVID crisis. So what's, What's the impact of our sleep, our sleep quality on ailments or conditions such as you know, heightened anxiety, depression? Um, I know there's a link, um, but uh, we, you know, what role does sleep play in um, helping to alleviate some of those issues? Okay, so first of all, if we're not getting enough sleep or the quality of our sleep is terrible or timing of our sleep is bad, every psychiatric condition can be exacerbated or triggered. So for example, poor sleep worsens anxiety because it shuts down your brain's frontal lobes or your rational brain. So more irrational, more impulsive. Poor sleep also results in your cortisol or stress hormones going through the roof, more inflammation, more, I mean, less protective hormones like anabolic hormones like, like testosterone. So what's happening is you're getting hungrier you have more stress, less stress tolerance, less psychological resilience, worse anxiety. Poor sleep can also worsen ADHD or, or concentration problems because concentration is a function of the frontal lobes. They help you with attention, concentration, executive functioning, task organization, planning, multitasking, 
a lot of people are misdiagnosed with ADHD when in fact they may have sleep apnea or poor sleep, which is a disaster because then they're given Adderall, which worsens anxiety and anxiety worsens concentration. Then they're given higher doses of Adderall and it becomes a crap show. Depression. 90% of depressed people have sleep problems. Hmm. And if we address the sleep issues, their depression gets better. I mean, anyone who's listening to us today who's been through bouts of depression know that they can just sleep and they don't want to get out of bed. They're just sleeping a long, long time, especially seasonal depression in the wintertime where people sleep longer, feel more lethargic. There's actually direct correlations with bad structure to your sleep, terrible routine, vitamin D, mm. which affects the frontal lobes and the vitamin D also affects your gut. That's a whole other topic called the microbiome where your gut bacteria, four of the most important bacteria, rely on your vitamin D. And then they produce your B vitamins that help you with blood flow to the brain, red blood cells, and nervous system development. So if you have low vitamin D, less sunlight in the wintertime, lay in bed longer, it's going to set you up for failure that way as well. So it becomes a bit of a cycle, I suppose, isn't it? It does. And it's really hard to get out of it, especially for some people who are more sensitive to external factors. Mm. Some people are sensitive to light, sounds, textures, uh, seasons, and it's going to affect them even more. So sleep problems affect concussions as well. Your recovery from concussions are going to be... I'll stop you there just really quickly. And again, I don't want to digress too much, but I, Mm. for the last six years, have been struggling with post-concussion syndrome. And that is, that's the catalyst for for this program. Um, It's because I've gone down this like crazy, you know, um, journey of learning about the brain, primarily around my own challenges. And um, yeah, sorry to cut you off. I thought that was an important caveat to just sort of throw in there. I know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, uh, that is so true. Uh, Concussions will affect your ability to sleep. And there were huge studies done on thousands of people with concussions, even mild concussions. 50% of them had insomnia. 50% of them had had bad sleep apnea. Sleep apnea actually developed with people who had concussions. And if you don't regulate your sleep, you're not going to recover from concussions. So in my book, Peak Sleep Performance, I devoted an entire chapter to the overlap between sleep and concussions because it's going to be one of the most important strategies to recover from a concussion. Wow. Um, so are there actually diagnosable sleep uh, diseases uh, or is it all just a matter of some of the things we're talking about, vitamin D exposure, um, you know, blue light exposure, things of that nature. I know you do a lot of work with insomnia. So maybe just to um, set the, the context, I suppose, uh, what work do you specialize in? Because I know you do a lot of work there. Um, and yeah, I, I guess what I want to know is, are there are some people more predisposed to sleep problems or is it entirely, um, you know, our habits and our routine and things of that nature? All of the above. So let me let me let me explain it this way. Um, I work in brain health. I work with Dr. Daniel Amen. He's one of the foremost um, psychiatrists in the world. Written forty-two or forty-one books, most of them bestsellers. Because this guy is focused on understanding all the underlying factors that damage our brains, eliminate those things, do the things to help heal your brain, and your symptoms will improve. So, mental health is actually brain health. And brain health is actually whole body health. And one of the core pillars of brain health is sleep. Just as we look at brain health and understand that, hey, depression might be because of low vitamin D, low iron, low zinc, carbs and sugars in your diet, lack of aerobic exercise, poor sleep. Similarly, there's a lot of factors affecting your quality and quantity of sleep, like our screens, activating stuff before bedtime, anxiety, depression, chronic pain, So yes, there are distinct sleep disorders. And for example, insomnia, there are certain precipitating factors that trigger it. Maybe a breakup with out of a toxic relationship somehow affects your sleep. Maybe it's a bad situation in life. Then 
there are perpetuating factors after the precipitating factors. What perpetuates this? Then it's our thought cycles and our behaviors. So we may lie in bed worrying or missing that, that toxic partner, or then, then we start wondering, hey, it's two hours later, we're not falling asleep. You start clock watching that activates your brain some more. Then you start worrying about what a crappy day the next day is going to be and how evil your boss is going to be because you can't function properly. And then it fuels that negative pattern, right? So that's, that's perpetuating factors. Um, so precipitating, per perpetuating factors. And that kind of, additionally, there's predisposing factors. So what are your, what's your genetic risk? Are you more of a sensitive person? Are you more susceptible to anxiety and worry? Are you more susceptible to sleep disorders? Do you have a family history of sleep disorders? All those things gonna play a role and feed into one another. So those things have to happen in order to activate your already genetic predisposition to sleep disorders or anything that leads or contributes to sleep disorders. And so there are distinct sleep disorders. There's the insomnias, which again are fueled by many other factors. There's the excessive sleepiness of the hypersomnias like narcolepsy, which can be because of head injuries or genetic predisposition. There's sleep apneas, central sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea, the breathing disorders that is. There's acting out your dreams, so abnormal sleep movement disorders or sleep seizures. There's parasomnias where people um, sleepwalk or sleep talk or do other things in their sleep and that's really interesting because a lot of legal cases now with that kind of stuff. And then the other segment is circadian rhythm disorders. So you're a night owl or a morning bird, somewhere in between. And that's really cool when I work with my athletes and executives who travel frequently because you know what jet lag feels like, right? And if we can strategize even before the, I was supposed to be in, in Tokyo this year, sadly it didn't happen. Um, we know that you can boost your performance as you arrive. If you understand your rhythms, you can switch them and change them so that you arrive at your destination at your peak. Mm. And that's huge when I, just for one small example, if you're a morning bird, your peak performance will be early in the morning. So if you're training at the same time every morning, you're performing early in the morning, your peak performance is going to be in the early morning. But if you're a night owl, your peak performance is going to be 11 hours after you wake up it's in the evening and that difference is as profound as 26 percent yeah. in the athlete world right one percent makes the difference between the gold medal and the fourth place finisher in the beijing olympics yeah so these numbers are huge wow that is um that's insanely fascinating i see how you uh, become quite the masochist with the, with your studies because it's deeply fascinating. You know, there's so much to kind of unpack, I suppose. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about, um, I guess, uh, ways to combat, and we'll talk about some specific strategies in a moment, but I want to talk about sleeping aids specifically, the good ones, the bad ones, and kind of have that conversation. I know a lot of people will be who are watching this or listening to this will be wondering, is there a time or is there a place in, you know, in my life and in this world for things like sleeping pills, benzodiazepine, things of that nature? Um, are they entirely bad? If they are, what are the good ones? You know, um, can we take melatonin supplements? Can we dive down that um, conversation a little bit to unpack what's good and what's bad? Yes. So overall sleep medicines are only used for the short term to catch up on your sleep in the short term. And good responses are seen in people who use them appropriately. But you need to also look for the underlying factors. In our generation, Liam, everyone wants a quick fix, right? Patients come to me and say, just give me a med doc. And a lot of the over-the-counter medicines have Benadryl or hydroxyzine, they're antihistamines. So the side effect is sedation. So what you're doing is essentially carpet bombing your brain rather than a precision strike. The long-term effects of those kinds of over-the-counter medicines include things like addiction, dementia in long-term studies, it's terrifying, and restless legs. A lot of the antidepressants we use like Prozac and Paxil and Zoloft can also trigger restless leg syndrome, 
a lot of antidepressants and anxiety meds, sleep meds can cause weight gain. There's a black box warning in the US with the FDA here in the US when it comes to certain sleep meds because they can cause abnormal sleep behaviors like sleepwalking, sleep talking, sleep driving, and it can result in death or legal implications. There's even something called sexomnia where people have sex with their partner when they're asleep under the influence of meds and the partner says that they raped them. So those meds are not fun. They're dangerous meds as long as, as well, if you're using the short term, it's fine. Mm. But even melatonin, Liam, it's not really used the way it's supposed to be used. And fine, there's very little oversight when it comes to supplements. So you need to make sure you're getting a good quality supplement from a reliable company. And then the dosing matters too. You can go to your pharmacy or corner shop and, and get melatonin, but the dose is often too high. So typically the doses of melatonin need to be between 0.5 to 1.5, maybe, maybe three milligrams. Okay. That's like the maximum I'd go because a three milligram dose of melatonin raises your blood levels tenfold. But melatonin is not supposed to knock you out. It's as effective as switching the lights off. It's supposed to nudge your brain into sleepiness. So if you take too much of it, you're going to have a hangover effect the next day. Mm. So melatonin needs to be used 60 to 90 minutes before your desired bedtime, along with dimming the lights. Maybe your spouse will think it's romantic. You know, dark glasses in the house in the evening Pretend you're Bono from U2. It doesn't matter as long as you're allowing your natural melatonin levels to rise. And then you might need a supplement like that. So I like melatonin if it's done right. GABA is another good supplement. I've been taking that. Again, the, um, yeah. Uh, funnily What's your enough, experience, Liam? Very good. So funnily enough, you mentioned um, Dr. Daniel Amen there. You know, I'm, I love his work, almost a bit of a fanboy to an extent, listening to one of his books currently on Audible. Um, and I've heard him mention that that was the first time I'd come across that term, I suppose, GABA or GAMA, whatever the, you know, whatever the acronym stands for. Um, and so I went out to a, like a good nutrition supplement company here in Australia and, and I found some GABA and I thought I'd give it a go. So I put a little bit um of it in like a powder into a chamomile tea in the evening and a little bit of like reiki mushroom extract that i've get from a friend of mine who runs a, a company there um and it's been good like i've had noticeable difference sleep quality's improved not very not real groggy the next day necessarily um not none more so than the kind of you know the post-concussion issues i uh, have from time to time so yeah it's it's but notably better. That's amazing. What dose, if you don't mind me asking you, how much GABA do you take? It's a, it's a quarter teaspoon of the powder. So I don't know exactly what that equivalents yeah. to, um, but it's like a concentrated GABA powder and it says to put a quarter mm -hmm. teaspoon on. Beautiful. So melatonin, GABA, 5-HTP, L-theanine, vitamin B6, good vitamin D levels, passion flower, lemon balm, magnesium, mm. super effective for deep sleep and chamomile tea. So those are my top 10 really. Um, and mm. you're using a few of them. I designed a sleep supplement for Dr. Amen. I don't know if you're aware of this. It's called I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Tell me, yeah. I, I wasn't, yeah. I didn't dive into it too much because I wanted to have this conversation. So um, what's it called again? It's called uh, Put Me to Sleep. That's the one. Yeah. What's that about? Yeah. Put Me to Sleep is from, uh, well, his company sells it. It's called BrainMD. It's the name of his company. So what we did there was, you know, it took me two years to develop a product because I wanted to make sure we did our due diligence and research and made sure that it worked for a vast majority of people who have insomnia or sleep disruptions or non-refreshing sleep in the absence of things like sleep apnea and other more serious problems. So we had super low dose melatonin, just 1.25 milligrams in each pill, 5-HTP, which gets converted to serotonin. So it calms your brain down. L-theanine, which also calms those emotional circuits down. GABA, magnesium to regulate your deep sleep and vitamin B6. So vitamin B6 again helps produce more serotonin. So we kind of like, 
feeding the different mechanisms that calm the brain down in a meaningful way so that as you go through your nighttime routine of winding down, hopefully you go through that routine, it's going to potentiate your efforts much better. And it's going to help you cycle between deep and dream sleep properly so that you get the restorative sleep with both types of sleep and you wake up refreshed and restored without any of that nasty hangover effect. Can we get that here in Australia? I, I don't know. I hope so. So if you just go into the BrainMD website, uh, you could try and figure out how you could package it or you could do it through Amazon as well. So I'm sure I'm sure there's there a way. There must be a way. There must be a way. I hope there is a way. Yeah. Hey Shane, you mentioned routine there. We've touched on it a little bit throughout, but um, is there a universal approach to a bedtime routine, or does it vary between people? Because I guess what I'm alluding to is um, I know people. I imagine you do. People listening might relate or know someone who's in this boat where maybe they find that they can't sleep without the TV on, and they find that works for them. But they wake up feeling pretty good. Um, or they, there's other people who you know do a meditation before bed or um, yoga nidra. I actually did a yoga nidra last night and actually found it really good. But um, so, is there is there universal laws that apply to a bedtime routine? The first rule is this: if no matter what the books say or what sleep hygiene on the Google uh, or whatever your Google search told you to do, regardless of what they tell you. If you're getting good sleep and waking up refreshed, you don't need me. Mm. Do whatever you're doing. Like personally, Liam, I, I have no issues falling asleep. I can drink a coffee at 10 p.m. I sleep really, really well. I'm blessed. Okay. Uh, so if something works for you, do it. But if you're waking up unrefreshed, if you're worrying or thinking, if you're snoring, if you're tossing and turning, if it's not restorative sleep, if you're feeling sleepy in the middle of the day, then it's not good sleep. And that's when we need to intervene. So yes, one size doesn't fit all, but for the vast majority of people who have difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, we need to first use strategies under the umbrella of what's called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which simply means helping our brains resynchronize and relearn what normal sleep is, what the bed is actually supposed to do for us, how safe the bedroom is supposed to be. That involves a nice wind down routine. Maybe your to-do list, you write it out a few hours before bedtime, your worry list, the dimming of the lights, the melatonin, the calming, the meditation is amazing, deep breathing exercise, a nice warm shower, whatever it is. One size doesn't fit all, but whatever works for you, is what you need to be consistent with. Mm. Because then your brain thinks, oh, Liam has started brushing his teeth and now he's showering. So yes, it's winding down toward bedtime. And then you start re realigning those rhythms in a way that your brain knows, hey, I'm supposed to wind down. Because if you're lying in bed thinking and worrying and, and thinking some more, then you're actually training your brain to use the bed and nighttime to worry. People wake up in the middle of the night and decide, hey, I'm wide awake. Let me finish this email or, or wash the dishes. You're then giving your insomnia a function and you're training your brain to do that every night. So, so what it's should often you, about retraining your brain. What should you do then if you do wake up in the middle of the night or if you can't fall asleep? Should you get up? Should you do anything? Should you lie there, toss and turn? Any ideas there? Well, if your spouse or your pet is responsible, kick them out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that. <laughs> so keep your wake-up time fixed all days of the week. Now, of course, we live lives. We have friends. We have social lives. So you can't really go to bed at the same time every single night unless you want to be a hermit. I get it. But if you keep your wake-up time fixed most days of the week, that's going to be your anchor point. Hmm. And typically... People may need seven and a half hours of sleep or nine hours of sleep. I count in 90 minute chunks because 90 minutes is around one sleep cycle. So six sleep cycles is nine hours. Five sleep cycles is seven and a half hours. So each one will know how much sleep they need. Again, in the absence of things like sleep apnea and chronic pain and anything else that's messing with your sleep. So if you need nine hours of sleep every night and you want to wake up at eight, a.m. every morning, 
then you're going to want to be able to sleep from 11 p.m. onwards. So your wind down calming routine needs to kick in at 10 p.m. And say, for example, you can't fall, you're not really sleepy at 11 p.m., do not get into bed. Now, a lot of people say, I feel so tired, I want to go to bed. No, there's a big difference between sleepiness and tiredness, mm. right? So sleepiness is when you can actually doze off. So keep doing that relaxing, boring stuff I told you about, whether it's breathing or meditation until you're actually Gregorian music, whatever flows to your boat, until you're actually sleepy, then get into the bed. And now mm. if you wake up in the middle of the night, don't look at the clock, okay? Go pee, have a sip of water, whatever you want. Get back into bed. And if you feel that you haven't fallen asleep after 20 minutes or so, then you need to get your butt out of bed, go to a nice comfortable area of the house, warm blanket, whatever, and then do that boring stuff that you did at the beginning of the night. So hmm. meditation, boring book, stuff like that until you're sleepy again and then get back into the bed because then you're breaking the cycle between tossing and turning, worrying and sleeping in the bed. It's called classical conditioning in psychology like that famous Russian uh, scientist did with his dogs and the bell and the salivation. We all know that experiment, right? Pavlov, exactly. So that's basically what, what we do with our brains when we toss and turn and worry and think. And you can break that cycle. So say you've been up for an hour and then you're crawling back into bed when you're sleepy, keep that wake up time fixed. Why? Mm. Because by the time night comes around again, your brain will be slightly sleep deprived. So you'll actually get better, more consolidated, better quality sleep. I like that you said um, cycle there. Like it's so easy and it works both ways, right? Pretty much in everything, whether it's sleep, you know, uh, or any other kind of endeavor or important pillar of mental health and, you know, performance and things of that nature, you often, um, if you can get it right and follow the, and follow the right things. And over time you change your psychology and your belief of what the outcome will be. Hence you have someone like yourself who, Hey, I am, your identity is such that I'm someone who can fall asleep quite easily, which then makes it a bit easier to fall asleep and so on. Vis-a-vis someone who may be watching, listening to this going, Liam, Shane, you don't understand. I'm a shit sleeper. I can't sleep. I've tried everything. Da, 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 da. There could be all kinds of variables at play, but undoubtedly, I'm sure you would agree, part of that is the relationship that they have with sleep. And I like that you touched on CBT there earlier and that classical conditioning. It's the relationship you have with the bedroom, right? It's the relationship you have with sleep in general. And God knows I've... Um, fallen victim to that sometimes over the years as well. So I do you think that's a massive element of is breaking the, or changing the relationship you have oh, with sleep? Yeah. yeah. That's a massive element. Like uh, go back to the example of, of if, you, if you're having a, a bad relationship, you're dreading coming home, right? You'd rather go out with your mates and have a beer. So you want to come back to the home because it's a stressful kind of thing. Similarly, people end up starting to dread bedtime, dread the bedroom, dread the bed because of what's happening. A lot of my patients who suffer from PTSD, they don't want to suffer from nightmares. So they try and avoid sleep as much as possible or they've been traumatized at night or in the bedroom. And then that's just going to fuel that negative cycle. It's going to take time, but we can get it right. And that's why one thing is like, if someone tells me I've been trying for years to sleep, I say, well, that's the first thing you're doing wrong. You're trying. because sleep is about being vulnerable. Sleeping is the most vulnerable thing we do. And trying, anxiety, stress, our danger mode, our brain is going to self-preservation mode. We're wired to protect ourselves. So if you're in anxiety mode, there's no way in the world you're going to allow your brain to calm down and fall asleep. So Viktor Frankl spoke about paradoxical intent in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. Mm where he said, if you try hard, it's a surefire way to fail when it comes to sleep or when it comes to excessively sweaty palms or social anxiety. So the letting go, the allowing yourself to go through the process 
will enable the outcomes to follow. But if you don't stick with the process, thinking about the outcomes of chasing night-to-night variability, checking your Fitbit or smartwatch multiple times a night, you are invariably sabotaging yourself. Mm. Yeah, I've got a couple more for you, Shane, um, and then we'll, we'll find out how people can connect with you. And I want to talk a little bit about, a bit more about your book as well. But um, I figure what I've got access to, I'd like to talk about the, I guess, the impact of food and probably more specifically alcohol. So what I mean by that is people I talk to, some, well, some people anyway, they enjoy the nightcap, you know, the, the glass of red or whatever it might be just before they go to bed. And I'm sure it's not healthy. And I've heard Dr. Eamon talk, eloquently about uh, alcohol is not a health food um but that idea like i can't relate to in terms of a nightcap i find if i have a couple of drinks before bed it, i don't know what's going on and i'd love to get your thoughts on that like i find i'm quite active my i feel fun, i just feel weird and i don't like it but that said i really enjoy a drink um and you know people i'm sure it's the same in the states but in australia you know it's almost commonplace to have a, have a few drinks you know even during the week so um what are your thoughts around that and why is it that some people can fall asleep quite easily after you know a couple of drinks and others can't yes so alcohol look i enjoy my bourbon once in a while as well okay uh, we do know that in the long-term studies the ideal amount of alcohol is no alcohol mm. and dr amen speaks about that as well but I'll tell you what alcohol does to your sleep. Of course, we know it affects the brain in different ways. What it does to you first is it's a CNS or central nervous system depressant. So it calms your nervous system down. A lot of my patients have anxiety, actually want to wind down after a long day, or they know they're not going to be able to sleep because their brain is racing. So they have that nightcap. It calms your brain down initially. You might be able to fall asleep but it's going to wake you up in the middle of the night because alcohol bounces off your brain's receptors. And then when that depressant calming effect is removed, your brain goes through a partial withdrawal. So what's a withdrawal from a CNS depressant? Activation, anxiety. And that's exactly what happens. So most people Mm. who have a nightcap wake up in the middle of the night and then it's going to be hard for you to fall back asleep. Now, the other piece is alcohol relaxes your muscles, Liam. So we all know what sleep apnea is, right? The airway kind of closes off, your tongue falls back and you snore and your spouse wants to suffocate you with a pillow and you wake up feeling like awful the next day. Alcohol relaxes the muscles and so worsens sleep apnea. So you'll suffer even more the next day and sleep apnea causes your brain to sometimes wake up during the night, breathe, Go back to sleep. If your brain wakes up for less than three seconds and then goes back to sleep, you won't even be aware of the fact that you've woken up, but you'll wake up feeling like you've been hit by a truck. Mm. And alcohol also damages the frontal lobes, which help you with stress and resilience building and your temporal lobes, which help you with your emotional swinging or your emotional pendulum. And so therefore, less stress tolerance, more anxiety, more worry, more weight gain with alcohol, and the more sleep you lose, for every four hours you're, you're deprived of, of sleep, your brain thinks you need 900 more calories. You're going to go to the junk food, like sugar and carbs, which will worsen inflammation, worsen stress hormone release, thereby causing more sleep problems. And again, you can see how you can go one way in terms of a, a bad cycle, but if you can get it the right, you know, everything moving in the right direction, it's a positive cycle and you'll be able to have that frontal lobe, um, more disciplined approach to your eating and then it all feeds into the, you know, a better sleep and things of that nature. And I've certainly found that to be the case as well. Um, I feel like we could talk for hours. Your, we could. <laughs> I want to respect your time. Where I respect your time. We can talk 15, 20 minutes more. I'm well, I'd like to talk a little bit more about food then. So let's yes. say in the evening, um, well, actually, let's just start from the start. Throughout the day, you wake up. Is there one diet, again, just from a universal point of view, is there a law that should that governs everybody? Or is it, do some people um, respond better to certain diets in, in terms of sleep? Um, where does sugar come in? Is it entirely bad? What about carbs? 
what are your general thoughts around food to optimize a good night's sleep? Okay, so the first thing is that timing of food is critical. So your meals, even in the daytime, even in the morning and afternoon are really important because what happens when we eat? The blood flow goes to the gut. You break down those things and your bacteria get activated and it can affect your brain. That's why they advise you not to perform in athletics when you've just had a big meal, right? So the timing of the food is critical. And at night, it's important to eat at least three hours before your desired bedtime. Now, it's in the field of what they call chrononutrition, the timing of nutrition in your meals, like the timings of, of your sleep and wake cycles. So yes, there are certain foods that help promote sleep, certain foods that help you know, activate you. So carbs and sugars in general, the general rule of thumb is that they slow you down, make you tired and sleepy because they kind of worsen inflammation. They shut the frontal lobes down. So more lethargy, sleepier. So why does that happen? Carb sugars, blood sugar levels go up and your brain is to, your body is to produce insulin to bring those levels down, but your body of often overcorrects. So then you have a little lower levels of blood sugar in your body. And then your body says, oh no, the blood sugar levels are super low. Let's release the stress hormones, like boost the blood sugar. Then you get more stressed out. You want to eat more carbs and sugar. So there's very inconsistent energy patterns during the day. That's where carbs and sugars are bad. However, with my athletes who have to perform in a major competition, athletes on average lose out around two hours of sleep the night before a big game. I'll tell them you can have that high carb high sugar meal the night before your big competition because it's going to slow their brain down they're going to be able to sleep properly and then by the time they're waking up in the morning it's out of their system so yes that's the way i time meals and the type of meals i described to you already now certain things can certain foods can increase important elements that help promote sleep like tryptophan right that's a big one and serotonin so foods like um, high quality organic protein, sweet potato, blueberries, chickpeas, apples can boost serotonin naturally. Apples. Antioxidants. Yes, apples. Hmm. Apples and chickpeas and blueberries. Uh, antioxidants can really help beta carotene like carrots can help you sleep better. Kiwi fruit have been shown to be very beneficial for sleep because they have so many other nutrients. They can boost serotonin, vitamin C, E, K, folate. Um, so kiwi fruit, there was actually study, there were studies done on kiwi fruit as well. Pretty effective. Tart cherries, more studies done on tart cherries, really effective. However, the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, those strategies are way more effective than these foods. These foods can just, you know, make an easier time off it. Um, Warm milk, you know, all wives' tales, do, does warm milk help you sleep better? Incidentally, this is really funny, um, studies have shown that milk from cows that have been milked at night, that milk has higher levels of melatonin and vitamin D, both of which can help you sleep. Wow. So make sure the cow was milked at night if you're drinking <laughs> nice warm milk. I don't know if we have the luxury of like picking and I don't know if it's not on the labels here in Australia at what time the cow is. Right. I don't know what it's like in Chicago. <laughs> no, we'd have to go to Wisconsin, our neighboring state. Right. Okay. Of course. <laughs> um, okay. So what about exercise then in the morning, in the evening, does it make a difference? Um, and the impact that has on our ability to fall asleep and of course the quality. I read a study today that showed that exercise in the morning is much better than exercise at night in terms of brain health and dementia. But again, one size does not fit all. If you are a morning bird, exercise in the morning is best. If you're a night owl, exercise at night is the best. Golden rule, do not do any vigorous exercise at least three or four hours before your desired bedtime because some people's Systems are more sensitive, as I mentioned, like the seasons and light similarly can be more sensitive to exercise. So my NBA players, when they have a night game, all of them are generally in the evening. I actually have them work through strategies to bring their adrenaline down, like biofeedback, neurofeedback, meditation, breathing exercises. A really cool breathing exercise is a 3-3-6 rule, 
the one that we teach our military snipers over here to slow their heart rates down. And that can really help regulate your, your, your heart rate as well. Um, it's in through the nose, breathe in for three seconds, hold for three seconds, and breathe out slowly through the mouth over six seconds like you're breathing out of a straw. Three in, hold for three, six out. So those strategies can help calm your brain down. If you do want to do some activity at night, I'd say yoga, mm. mild stretching exercises can help you sleep better at night. Yeah, everything you said that I agree, just from personal experience, and I've seen some of the studies coming out as well, and it's, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, your book, Peak Sleep Performance, is that the title? Yes, that is the title. Peak so what performance, what can people expect from the book? I mean, we've covered so much here. I feel like I've really tickled or scratched the itch of my geekiness um, in general. And I'm, the value I think that um, I've got for myself, which is always, you know, my North Star with these programs has been, certainly been met. And um, I know people who, have, who are connecting with the show will, will get just insane amount of value. But funnily enough, we're probably only scratching the surface of, you know, things we can do and the importance of sleep and, everything in between. So um, what is some, give us the highlight thrill of your book. What could we expect? So the book I wrote after being appalled at what's happening in the sport world internationally in terms of sleep being completely ignored. So it combines all my knowledge in exercise and mental health and performance and sports psychiatry and sleep problems and performance and the interplay between mental health and sleep. So it's all the strategies I use with my elite athletes that anyone can have access to. So all this called peak sleep performance for athletes, it basically lists all the practically applicable tools to weaponize your sleep and improve your performance. And it's really simple, doesn't go over the head. It, it basically goes through the pyramid of peak sleep performance where we start at the base and figure out stuff that's sabotaging your sleep Level two is sleep metrics. How do you monitor your sleep? What are Fitbits? Are they really beneficial? What about sleep diaries? Level three is the sleep environment, the lifestyle, supplements, sleep, exercise, nutrition, and harmful and helpful thought and behavioral strategies, that CBT kind of insomnia component. And level four, the very top of the pyramid, Liam, we actually talk about your circadian rhythms and how you can shift your rhythms to get to wake up when you want and get to bed when you want, feel refreshed, strategic ways to nap and extend your sleep as needed. Because for example, if you've gone out with your mates and you're uh, sleep deprived three hours, do you sleep in on a Sunday morning? No, you don't. You wake up at the same time, but you can lock in that three hour nap in the window, uh, like a 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. window, depending on what works best for you training schedules and sleep and lights and travel and the best supplements. So all that is there in the books. So basically your entire toolkit, your guide, your reference point is all there in the book. That's a really great resource for anyone. My Instagram is peak sleep performance. People are more than welcome to, to sign up. I have lots of sleep tips and hacks there. I've actually launched Lim, I've, I've launched um, pilot, a workshop, a free workshop for peak sleep performance for anyone who wants to sign up. The deadline for, for registering is the 23rd of this month. They can go to my website, shanecreato.com or the Instagram and then find links. They just have to email us and then they'll get a toolkit to start working. So tracking their sleep for a week, some core strategies to hack their sleep over two weeks and then a free Zoom call I will have with everyone who signed up for the workshop, address concerns and barriers and then optimize their sleep further. So I think this is a really useful option opportunity for people it's fantastic i'll get my tech guys to put all those uh, those links up on the on the video and in the show notes um and i'm sure i don't have to convince anyone how important sleep is and the difference it can have on performance certainly mental health which is just so crucial at a time like we're facing right now through 2020 um and everything in between um so i encourage anyone listening or watching to connect with shane and um dive even further in this conversation into the world of sleep because it is it is so fascinating and unbelievably important so with that said really appreciate you carving out the time today um shane it was, it was so good to connect we finally made it happen we had some issues um <laughs> which we we're laughing about off air but um, man i'm so glad we made it work 
I'm so glad, Liam. Thank you for uh, your flexibility in having me on the show. And if you want any help with your sleep, just you know how to reach me. I mean, happy to help you out and, and get you to an even better level of functioning. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to this episode. If you did enjoy it, if you got some sort of value from the episode, please do us a favor and subscribe to the channel. We've got lots more to come and share it with your friends and family. It all helps our mission of raising a million dollars towards brain injury recovery and research. So please share the podcast and I look forward to sharing more with you on another episode.